Texas. One of my major uh, hobbies is reading Victorian novels. I I never teach them, but I've read lots of them. I just find it really comforting, a, a long book. Mm-hmm. They're so long. <laughs> because they are the best. I mean, to be fair, for me, it's... Um, because I'm dyslexic, it was always a bit of like, right, it's the longest book I know, therefore I can fucking read. <laughs> I'm gonna... <laughs> so, I've proven it to myself. Yeah, I've proven it. <laughs> I can do 900 pages, fuck you all. <laughs> I like it because they're, a lot of them are very good, obviously, but I have no desire to work on them, so it's it's just... <laughs> What is it that you like about them? Do you find them comforting or some for some reason? Or? Yeah, and a lot also are... I mean, there's a lot of really good writing. The novel is good, too. Not as good as poetry, but good. Yeah, good, great, good. Finally, we have someone else who's on, on the poetry side, Louise. Ha-ha! Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Normally, it's all these Victorian like, novelist specialists that we have on the podcast. It's, nice to have somebody else it's not my Victorian. fault that I have loads of friends, like... <laughs> It's not my fault. I've got loads of friends. I'm just so fucking just popular. So popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Um, Alex is um, is a lecturer at Glasgow Uni, and then I'm literally about to move down for a lectureship at Durham Uni. But we're currently round the corner from one another. We were office mates yeah. when we were doing our PhDs. So. Durham is nice. I was there a couple of years ago. It's, um, it's a it's a big change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's not there's not much besides the cathedral. It's small, Durham. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. If I were going to teach at Durham, I would live in Newcastle. I think. Yeah, we we've just got a house, a little village outside of uh, of Durham. Um, Newcastle's great, um, but we've uh, we've got this house, and it's fucking ridiculous. Like, it's got a sauna. Which wasn't the plan, and like I don't know how. I mean, come on, if there's a house with a sauna. But and the, the, it, it, was, it wasn't. That's it wasn't a selling was. point. It's just more like. What, what do you mean? It wasn't a selling. It point? wasn't because the house is great anyway. I don't know how you upkeep a sauna. Like I don't think it's probably going to be that great <laughs> for the environment. To be quite honest, and I don't want it smelling damp and when I obviously forget to maintain it because I will. No, saunas <laughs> are good. Okay, fingers crossed. Um, so it's just it's just funny to me because I'm like the, the important thing is don't fall asleep mm. because you will die you will, right. you will dehydrate <laughs> and you'll die I love having lots of things in my house that can kill me like I just love adding to the list <laughs> wonderful <laughs> it's nice, nice to live a little you know live on the edge enforces structures of heteronormativity so here we go let's uh professional voice on <laughs> since when have you had a professional voice <laughs> since today uh okay hello and welcome to lol my praxis this week we are chatting with the notorious sgb otherwise known as professor stephen Guybray, who is currently professor of english literature at the university of british columbia stephen is a specialist in renaissance poetry queer theory and poetics and his most recently published book, Shakespeare and Queer Representation, was published last year. I actually used it in a course this year, and I told a student about it, and then they came the next week with an actual physical copy of it in their hand. I don't think I've ever seen a student do that before. They are very keen. Um, and he's so also much. currently finishing... I know, right? I was just thinking, he's like, cha-ching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> feel those royalties. Um, and he's also currently finishing another book on line endings in Renaissance poetry. 
He also got banned from Twitter. That's very important to know. Uh, we are very thrilled that Stephen could join us during the sacred celebrations of his birthday month, and we are very honored to have him here today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Very pleased to be here. Um, I'm not banned from Twitter anymore, I hasten to add. Um, also, I finished writing that other book on Monday. So. Oh, oh Jesus, congratulations. Please, calm down. I know. That's incredible. Yeah, no. Make us feel bad about our lives, why don't you? <laughs> Where's your book, Louise? I don't know. They're still reading it. They're still reading it. Where's your book, Alex? <laughs> oh, it definitely doesn't exist in any shape or form. <laughs> um, mine's out to readers right now, so I'm in that nice, that's nice ground of like oh yeah i totally have a book they could still reject it though but right now it's fine it doesn't I think won. that's exciting that it's at the readers congratulations we'll see what happens it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um, but no um so why were you banned from twitter i was banned from twitter because a friend of mine a graduate student in the states was talking about um the homophobic bullying he, he'd received. And I said, I will fucking kill them. And Twitter's algorithm picked that up as a serious threat. And it oh, took six weeks for an actual human to look at it. And of course, the human instantly said, that's not a real threat. So they got me back on Twitter. Oh. But at least it was a banning for the right reasons, though. Yes, I thought it was a badge of honor. That part was good. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think you should put it in your Twitter bio and every academic bio that you ever submit. That like, that's what we banned from Twitter. Banned from Twitter. <laughs> like that, that's kind of just one step away from like being blocked by someone awful on Twitter or like. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, um, uh, Alain Badiou, is that, I'm, I'm, I'm so bad at French, but um, you, do you remember Ross McLaughlin, mm. Louise? He was banned on Twitter by, or like he was blocked by um Alain Badiou for like tweeting something about his latest book like oh, I don't really enjoy this and he just like <laughs> he got a message got an email to his student university account from Alain Badiou being like uh, I can't believe you feel this way <laughs> never met him before no idea who this person is he just scours Twitter for people not enjoying his work and then blocks them great wow. that's it. terrible no it's 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 never wise to google yourself I mean, have you done that? Are you inclined to to block people who don't enjoy your your latest book? No, I, I don't care. I block people if they're uh, <laughs> if they're just horrible, but not usually even as a result of an interaction. Just someone, you know, some of those accounts you see on Twitter every day saying something unpleasant. Mm, Eventually, mm. I think I don't have to read this shit, so I block them. Mm. Yeah, there's uh, there's a few circulating on mine at the moment of people being like. I've got so many mutuals with this person and all they do is post gender critical stuff. Mm. And oh. it's just like, but it seems like with some of these folk on Twitter, it just seems to be like they've completely changed their persona. They're now just, that is, they, they're researchers, but now all they think about is gender critical stuff, which the is likes, just... The likes, the follows. Oh, I thought you were... I, no, I, no, no. I noticed that with someone just yesterday, I forget who it was, but it's a, a woman, a historian, I think, and yeah, she used to post sort of normal stuff that we all do about her research, and now every single thing is about trans women posing a danger in bathrooms. Yeah. Every single one is something like that. I think why would you let that take over your life like that? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, oh, I mean, I, I don't understand why you'd have those views anyway. But you know, trying to sort of see the other side, but how can you let it? overtake things yeah, so much your entire life. That's that's, 
Yeah, it's, it's awful. Bunch of assholes. Such an arsehole. Reading reviewer two comments be like... Okay, okay, question. What is the gayest play ever? <laughs> <laughs> that was... um. I was in this book called Shakespeare, which was the most fun book ever, edited by a friend of mine, Madhvi Menon, who teaches in India. <clears throat> and so she asked people, she wanted an article, short article on every one of Spencer's, uh, Shakespeare's texts. And so we all chose texts, and only about 40 of us were Renaissance specialists. So for everyone else said, it's like grad school writing paper on Shakespeare again. So it was so much fun, and I did Henry VI Part Two because I think it's really weird. And then there was a colloquium at uh, Cornell University. And so I was one of the people talking and the head secretary got in touch and said, I need a title for your talk. And I thought, I said, well, I think the title is just Henry the Sixth Part Two, but you could call it the gayest play ever. So <laughs> they went with that. And then I thought, oh, no, because it's actually not, I mean, it, there's just no, gay action it's not gay at all well, well <laughs> these two men who've been decapitated they're going to make their decapitated heads kiss that's that's the mm-hmm. that's as close as you get but so i actually ended up rewriting the paper to deal with the fact that i called it the gayest play ever also it's a really good title i mean it is, it is a, a great title thing. um but i mean sort of a, a, a gay act for the decapitated heads is maybe not what we think of when we're thinking, yeah, queer. You know, if it's good head. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was one of those sort of misunderstandings that's actually really productive. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm really tempted to just ask you straight out, how's your head? <laughs> <laughs> my head is fine and still attached to my body, so that's... No complaints. No complaints. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't actually, I don't know Henry VI um, part two at all. Yeah, I don't even like, know part one. Like, well, yeah. Like, like, I think the Henry I know is which one? Henry II? No, is that Richard II? All, all, the, all the kind of like, I was about to say plays are from, named after a man, but they're all named after fucking men. Um, <laughs> but the ones about the kings, I'm really bad at. I don't know any of those. Well, the famous... History plays. I was interested in the Henry VI plays because the, the famous history plays, like Richard II or the Henry IV plays, are more like standard Shakespearean drama, whereas the three Henry VI plays are really sort of weird and experimental. And I sort of like that they can show that the history play could have been different. Like those plays are just a big old mess. People are always running on stage and off stage and carrying body parts and weird things happen all the time. And so it's a vision of history, not as an orderly progression towards the next king, but history as a kind of free-for-all. So I think they're actually quite a lot of fun. Yeah. So how do, how do they fit into the sort of Shakespeare canon then if they just seem completely bizarre and like a little bit unrelated to the histories and that? Well, they don't really. I mean, they're, the thing about Shakespeare is, of course, everyone has to say he's the greatest writer ever. But in order to do that, I mean, certainly a lot of his works are great, but they have to neglect the ones that are not so great. Mm-hmm. So typically, <laughs> yeah, plays like Henry it. VI plays are not, they're not taught in schools, they're not performed very often. There was a big um, BBC production of the Henry VI plays, but all sort of mashed together into one. Mm. So they did all the sort of 
14th century history plays all mashed at one. Uh, but typically, you know, you would never get a chance to see those plays. That's the secret of Shakespeare. And in Shakespeare and Queer Representation, I write on King John, which no one likes. <laughs> it's actually King Is that your thing? Do you just like? Do you just write about the plays that nobody likes? I know it looks that way. I, I don't, but it is daunting, you know. If, I'm not that I'd ever write on Hamlet, but imagine writing on Hamlet and thinking, being a responsible scholar and thinking, I should see if anyone else has ever written about Hamlet, and then <laughs> I was going to say, I've got a hot new take for Hamlet. Come on, and then you would just cry. So <laughs> yeah, that's actually substantial practical difficulty. For, for Shakespeare and Career Representation, I had a chapter on Macbeth, and that was tough, getting through the Macbeth. There's <laughs> just so much of it, you know, and you know you cannot read it all, so you have to try to figure out what would be good. I mean, people have this problem in er- every area of English. The really popular texts just have huge bodies of secondary criticism. Yeah. Macbeth is a banger, though, like, because yeah. admittedly, I'm afraid I really detest Shakespeare. I went to school in Stratford-Avon, and so I have feelings, and that is probably why I have those feelings. Um, But Macbeth is an absolute banger, and I I like Macbeth. Um, But so, because it's a play that a lot of people know, could you take us through sort of what's queer about Macbeth? Banquo, Fleance, the entire name Fleance. I mean, yeah, that's it, that's it. (laughs) It is really weird. Done, sorted. Um. And anytime I teach Macbeth, students are always, why is he called Fleance? And I would say, I have no idea. <laughs> because his parents hated him, is the answer. Yes, hated him on sight. In the Macbeth chapter, I really talked about the weird sisters and how, you know, in, in typical Shakespeare plays, the play begins in the main world, typically with sort of secondary characters, and then you in like Hamlet begins with soldiers on the wall and then you go into the castle and meet the royal family but Macbeth begins with the witches so there's a short scene then you have a scene with the humans which is like the standard first scene of a Shakespearean play and then you're back with the witches so I was kind of interested that the witches are different because they're sort of both men and women um I mean, they're usually played kind of as hot babes in productions, but <laughs> as as Banquo says, they have beards. Also, their speech... Hot babes can have beards, do they? Yeah, I guess that's true. It's, it's <laughs> now. But they also, um, they have magical powers, and they speak differently. Their verse is very different yeah. from blank verse. And it occurred to me that by beginning with that, Shakespeare, in a sense, distorts our view of the play. So is the play really about Macbeth or is it actually about the weird sisters and the humans, the Scottish people are actually an intrusion into their world. So it's sort of the opening, I think kind of decenters the play. And then of course you have the strong parallel between the sisters and Lady Macbeth, who starts out so promisingly and then she goes downhill. But you know, in the early scenes, you really think Lady Macbeth is just gonna kill everyone. And it's kind of exciting. I would love to see that rewrite, though. I know. She just, she becomes the sort of typical silent female character who melts away. She just dies off stage. It's like Lady Macbeth deserved more. She Mm -hmm. deserved a better death than what she got. Even her washing the blood from her hands, she's sleeping, right? And it's like, let's take away your agency from your guilt. Yeah. So the play gradually works to shut down what I see as the sort of queer possibilities presented by the weird sisters in their 
their their view on life, their powers, their strange language, all those things are an alternative that the world of the play cannot afford to endorse or follow. Mm-hmm. So you end up once again with, you know, the, the Macbeths die and you end up with a return to the regular Scottish royal family like they were so great and history continues <laughs> as it was. And now look. And <laughs> look at where they got them. <laughs> oh, we'll be free soon enough. <laughs> I will be living in England. Cut my life into pieces. This is my research methodology. Yeah, we, we think about methodology really seriously on this podcast um, right. via the methodology kazoo. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a game. The game is name that tune. But also, in our heads, this tune that we've selected is something to do with your research. So the game is, what is it and why is it about your research? Oh my God, this is so hard. I'm already (laughs) scared. Okay, let's go. I always forget which end to do, but I think it's the big end. The big end. (laughs) Blow into the big end, Louise. I know you're not good with phallic objects, but big end. I mean, that's the problem here. Completely stumped. <laughs> I think I have heard that before, but you know, I'm I'm very old, so I don't get out much. Oh no, th- this one, this yeah, one. No, uh... You can't play that card. <laughs> what, what is it? It's raining men. Is it? Hallelujah! <laughs> oh, no, I I mean... The good version that was a hit when I was young, before you were born. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the only version. Um, although, as much as I love ginger spice. The only version is uh, the Weather Girls. You know, the Weather Girls were originally called Two Tons of Fun. Amazing. They were persuaded to change their name, but I actually thought Two Tons of Fun is such a cool name for them. Such a good name. And who does Two Tons of Fun? I'm raging. I'm raging for them. Yeah, they should take it back. Re-release the albums. Well, (laughs) It's Raining Men could certainly apply to lots of things I've published. So much of it is on the hot man-on-man action. Um, But I think the book that comes to mind is my second book, Loving in Verse, about poetic influence, because there's a lot in that on um, not so much poetic inspiration, but poetic insemination. So we get the liquid theme. Okay. Oh, see, this is why I love the methodology kazoo because literally we chose it because it had men in the title. Um, <laughs> but everyone, everyone always always goes so much deeper. So I'm I'm really I'm here for the. We've got to read the deeper the meanings behind the line. Yeah, academics are like, oh, we've got to get to it. We've got to analyze. Like, there's there's more there, and really there was not. Um, <laughs> so what what so think of. So what is sort of liquid poetics then? What, 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 what are you referring to? No, no, poetic insemination. Poetic insemination, Louise. Poetic insemination. What, what is that? Well, I was responding to this was the most popular model of poetic influences from Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence. So his idea is that you're a young poet who's, who's a man and 
your work is very similar. You can see similarities to the work of an earlier poet who was also a man. And you kind of hate him and want to defeat him. And I think that's true sometimes, but so often if you look at the way poetic influence works, the, the, the later poet actually loves the earlier poet, which you know makes more sense. I think, oh my God, this stuff is so wonderful. So the po book was called Loving in Verse and the subtitle was Poetic Influence is Erotic. So I was talking about all the ways that poetic inspiration or sort of taking on this the spirit or soul of an earlier poet can be seen as a kind of sex act. So who was getting it on with who in that book? Well, I look at um, Dante with Virgil and Statius, the two Latin poets who appear as characters. Oh, so hot. And then Spencer's use of um, medieval poetry, Chaucer and others. And then for total gayness, maximum gayitude, I used... Um, Hart Crane and his use of Walt Whitman. Oh, yes, mega gay. So those are two really, uh, even Whitman, pretty well openly homosexual poets. Mm -hmm. And Hart Crane wrote really well about his connection to Walt Whitman. So it was fun. It was fun to write that. Yeah, so how, many, how many semen metaphors did you get in there? Sadly, not as many as I should have, I see now. Uh. Um, <laughs> If you could add one in, what would follow it be? Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the second edition, what would you put in? That is good, isn't it? I don't know. I'll have to think about it. But I know that the tagline on the ads would be, now with added semen. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Incredible. And that's not because it's going to add, like, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, but because it's like... <laughs> I mean... I couldn't be a romanticist because I mean I just write on Coleridge and like semen in that poem like I, I I couldn't help myself like I just I couldn't but I have a question that came up in terms of so I was actually doing um we did a week on sonnets for my introduction to poetry course and um in that we used some of your book and talking about sort of what does it mean to clear a sonnet and then the chat that came up through it because it was on, on it was an online lecture there was a very heavy debate that emerged which was Shakespeare top or bottom yeah. So I'd like to have your insights on this. Bottom. Bottom. Oh, tell us why. You know how, um, you know the emoji, the bottom emoji? <laughs> yeah. You mean I mean, the it's the one, if you search emojis and you, you type in pleading, so it's a face with eyes turned up pleading. Mm -hmm. Anyway, bottoms always use that. It's the sign of a bottom to use that frequently. And <laughs> that, that emoji actually sums up most of the sonnets to the man that Shakespeare oh so true <laughs> no. please oh please um, oh my god absolute bottom yes okay good I'm glad I'm going to tell this to my students they'll love it <laughs> and also you know emojis you can really connect with Gen Z yeah they love it <laughs> hey kids Um, another thing that we like to ask for um, is um, we like to ask guests for a Tinder bio. I don't mm. know if you've prepped one. Or Grindr bio, whatever works. Yeah, Grindr as well. I think it's also acceptable. The favourite one I've ever read, I think, is I like long walks to the fridge. I think that's really good. <laughs> um, but I think what I would do if if for a grinder bio would be, you know, I'm big on alliteration. Um, so it would be, I think, 
interests in prosody and prosecco. Oh yes, okay, love it. Nice, nice. I like that. That is. Can that you get sounded... one of those really like basic bitches um, posters that's just like prosody o'clock and have that in your office? That would be great. Yes. Oh my god, that's going on. That's going on. That's going on the. Um, that's going on the Law My Practice merch list, Louise. Yeah, that, that would go on the merch list. <laughs> but I think if you had on your profile, if you had prosody and prosecco, that would actually weed out a lot of people right away. So it would be useful. Yeah. Right? We don't want to attract anyone. No, but I like I like it as well in terms of like so. Yeah, we we now generally debate whether we would swipe left or right. Um, I would definitely swipe right. I'm I'm all for the prosody. Um, I love a good prosecco. Mm-hmm. Can't be too sweet though. It's got to be a nice dry one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I stopped drinking, but I I did I did like prosecco. Uh, but yeah, no, I I th- I think that's strong, particularly with the illustration and stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, like. You're the poetry people. I don't. I don't understand things like this. So, but yeah, no. It, I. I, I but it, it sounds good. That it is my good. expert opinion. I see that you did very well at poetry. It sounds good. Yes. Yes. Very. Very good poetry. Very good poetry. Um, <laughs> definitely taught on that course that you're teaching now. <laughs> I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna let myself get. poetic insemination i mean i i have some questions though about um since we're talking about poetry now um which is essentially turning um a game we love games on the podcast uh a game of um fuck marry kill mm-hmm. um specifically about um long sonnet sequences and their um their who they are being directed towards so fuck marry kill um we think you'd enjoy this one so fuck marry kill astrophil mm-hmm. amphilanthus and the dear youth You've got a fuck, marry, kill. What? Very niche. Oh, oh, that's a good one. Um, I think I would marry Astrophil. Ooh. I would fuck Amphilanthus and I would kill the dear youth. Ooh. Oh, excellent. Okay. okay, tell us why. I need to know the ra- the rationale. I think you know, I just finished teaching again, um, Astrophil and Stella, and now we've started Shakespeare, and. It's a, I astrophil, is, kill him. <laughs> astrophil is weird in all sorts of ways, but I think he's basically likable. Um, mm-hmm. And he has that sweet side. Um, and the dear youth is really just irritating. And he gets more irritating. <laughs> Did you find? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just so, yes, agreed. I mean, I think one of the good, one of the real arguments you can make against thinking of Shakespeare's songs as a sequence, because, you know, they were published without his consent which doesn't mean he didn't want them published but he wasn't officially involved but you know you have to think if he had decided to publish them he would actually have trimmed a lot because there are lots of repetitions you know they're like a thousand sonnets about why are you so mean to me it's that bottom emotion Mm -hmm. game so there's no doing (laughs) there's no doing anything with um with the fair youth i think so he'll just have to die and then i think amphilanthus always seems kind of hot to me he does seem hot, right? I mean, like to be fair though, that's because um, Pamphylia is always a bit like, literally, burn me, burn me, baby. I want to hurt so bad that you like mm-hmm. burn my skin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think Amphilanthus would be the one you could probably have most fun with. Mm-hmm. If you were to kill the dear youth, then wouldn't he live forever in the verse? 
Uh, well, it depends when you kill them. If you killed them early on, there wouldn't be so many. True. It's true. A lot of the poems are good, but you know, I don't think the dear youth is really doing anyone any favors. Absolutely. He's burning hot. <laughs> Marry Astrophil because he's quote unquote sweet and seems nice. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we could probably do better than that. Um, I think we're worth more than that. <laughs> it's just I don't think yeah, Amphilanthus is a good bet for long-term stability. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I don't think he's got... He doesn't scream monogamy to no. me. Uh, or reliable. <laughs> 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 Talking about sonnets, like, is the sort of queer poetics of top and bottom maybe a good way of thinking about Petrarchan sonnet form? Wow, that's so deep. I like that. Yeah, it could... Definitely Alex's question. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have, have, have written about how, you know, the basic situation is that a sonnet tells a story of an unrequited love, which of course is not always true, but it is largely true. And that sort of leads naturally into considerations of um, sadism and masochism. Uh, and so the woman is, you know, is the woman sort of a, an, a distant and almost celestial beauty or is she more like a dominatrix? And uh, a friend of mine, Melissa Sanchez, has written about this, about women's sexuality in Astrophil and Stella and about the idea of the woman's position as um, being a kind of sadist. And then the poet, in submitting himself, is the masochist. Okay. So it's, it's a way for, um, from that point of view, you could, you could see your way to arguing that sonnets, unusually among ancient verse forms, give women a certain kind of sexual agency that they typically don't have. Mm, through their refusal. Yeah. And also, as you see in, in some, like in Astrophil and Stella, through their not total refusal, through their going back and forth, mm. through their encouragement, followed by discouragement mm. and so on. So what's the relationship then between the sonnet form and incel culture? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> a good I'm question, isn't it? But you could say that if you, you could say that being an incel could lead you to compose a sonnet sequence. It's sort of horrifyingly plausible, isn't it? I mean, true, because they, they really subscribe to like what chivalric codes yeah. and shit, right? They really deep, deep, deep into that, which is just all the way through the sonnet. Well, and a lot of incels, yeah, their whole thing is that they have an ideal of, of women uh, that is sort of, as you say, it's, it's sort of chivalric. The problem they have is that actual women are all bitches. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that kind of aspect of incel culture fits really well on how sonnet sequences are sonnet sequences are often formulated. So like you could say that right, Reddit and 4chan are like the new sonnet sequence. The new sonnet crown. For incel culture. Well yeah, except they're not actually producing any great sonnets so that's, that's sort of the downside i am now really wanting to write to run like a poetry workshop that takes threads on reddit or 4chan and turn them into a crown of sonnets 
Um, oh my god. <laughs> I reckon we could get that funded. I reckon Thanks. we probably could get that funded, you know. If you were teaching a creative writing course, you could do you could sort of pick lines out of those forums and use them as writing prompts. Yes. Oh, nice. It does. What kind of love is this? Yeah, so here's here's the phrase. Now write a sonnet around it. And the phrase is I deserve this. That stuck up bitch. <laughs> it's generally pretty unpromising material. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame i thought we thought we'd crack something there oh well nearly crack say it again oh <laughs> i said certified free seven days a week poetics make that pull out game week <gasps> okay so i mean we're kind of talking a lot about the sonnet but is poetic meter just in general like kind of like inherently queer like what's the queerest poetic form Mm -hmm. okay it's really tempting to say all of them um <laughs> but actually I don't, I don't think that's true i think in the book i just finished um i have a chapter on the sestina and the sestina you know, is, is it's just impossibly complex and hard and fussy i mean in a good sestina you don't notice it in most sestinas you can really see the effort and that's that is arguably a queer form because um it actually elevates form over content. Okay, is, I'm really stupid, I'm afraid. <laughs> what is? <laughs> Sestina is a poem, 39 lines. You have six six-line stanzas, one three-line ones. And the form is based on the words at the end of the line. So okay. line one ends with Louise, let's say. That means you've committed poem. to having one line in each stanza end with the word Louise. But... Um, the, the, so the words are numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, and then in the next stanza they're numbered six, one, five, two, four, three, and it keeps changing like that. And after six stanzas, you've exhausted all possible permutations. Oh my god! So you yeah, see how difficult it would be. And I mean, my point—one of the main points I make in the Shakespeare queer representation book is that what I see as queer is the focus on form at the expense of content. The focus on the medium rather than the message, for instance. So any poetic form that is really kind of fussy and demanding um, can be seen as potentially queer, I think. <laughs> is that because there's a correlation between fussy and demanding? Or? No, it's because the, the <laughs> because that kind of focus on the means of representation actually um, works against teleology. Mm. So the, the idea, you know, is that the idea both of our society as a whole and our standard idea of narrative is boy meets girl, boy marries girl, they have children, right? So anything that interrupts that can be seen as potentially queer. And so you could have, for instance, a story which does tell that, follow that narrative, but it's actually incredibly, um, there are all sorts of digressions, there are parts where you know, there's so much imagery, you can't concentrate on what's being said and so on. Those are all moments, as I see it, in which representation is queered. Yeah. Because representation normally is, okay, I have a female character, so she's really beautiful, and she's beautiful in this particular way. And then I have another female character, and she's not beautiful. And so you know sort of what they're going to do, right? But that's a, you, you just need that minimum of representation. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in Shakespeare and queer representation, I was talking about Text by Shakespeare in which there's excessive representation. Mm, right, um, yeah. Like in Venus and Adonis, there are so many metaphors and similes 
that it's almost impossible to keep track of what's actually sort of happening event by event. <laughs> They're distracting, right? Mm -hmm. She begins the poem by talking about the purple-faced sun, and really, you never recover from that. <laughs> it's weird. The pressure's off, you feel it, but you got it all. This is grant capture. That so basically, queer is disruptive and distracted. Yeah, which is why I'm the queer half of this podcast. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of it goes back to what um, Lee Edelman says in the introduction to No Future, where he mm -hmm. says, um, "Queering isn't queer isn't an identity; it's the disruption of identity." And I think that idea of disruption which also can resolve and can be expressed in various ways as delay or fussiness and so on. Uh, I think that's essential to, to my idea of queerness and especially queerness in literature, as opposed to what we normally think of as queer content, like, you know, the way people talk about movies and TV shows, the queer content is there are these two young women who are clearly going out or something like that. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not generally talking about that kind of queer content. Yeah, it's, it's more complex. It's more kind of layered into the level of text as opposed to what's going on in the story. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, but you say that, but then there's like poems like Richard Barnfield, who just, he's just so thirsty. Um, so gay all the time, yeah. So gay all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but yeah, no, I, there are a lot. I mean, my earlier career, I wrote more about Renaissance texts with recognizable gay content. Uh, but I've lately I've been writing more about poetics and form and how queerness okay. can inhere and form in various ways. Mm, love that. So I'm just like, just had a whole day of taught, teaching poetry, so I'm like, ooh, I should have mentioned this. Um, but yeah. <laughs> So is this what's going into your recent book that you have already finished? Uh, the one about line endings, is that sort of part of the, the, <laughs> the discussion of, um, uh, of that book in terms of queering form and meter? No, that book is actually, it's, it's really not very queer at all. I mean, the, I think the whole enterprise is queer, but it's not something I really talk about in the book. But okay. the book is this incredibly fussy look at just how lines of poetry end often ignoring the rest of the poem. I love it. <laughs> but I love it. So as you just don't even start it. You're just sort of like, no, let's go straight to the ending. Yeah. I'm, I'm mainly talking about what happens at the end of the line. Um, I don't usually talk too much about what's happening in the poem as a whole or even necessarily in the rest of the line. So it's this sort of obsessive fussing over detail, which is, um, well, fun. <laughs> what's the best ending that you've uh, engaged with? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, one of the ones I always quote, talking about enjambment, is Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress, right? which is all about, mm. we don't have all the time in the world, so you should have sex with me because soon we'll be old, and in fact, then we'll be dead, and then we'll be very dead. It's a really strong argument, I can't lie. It is pretty good, yeah. Um, and so he has this enjambment of the last two lines, Um so, though we cannot make our son, that's the end of the line, stand still. So I just think it's such a great ending, and then it ends, yet we will make him run. So you have the alliterating word stand still at the beginning of the last line, 
and the enjambment shows that you cannot stop things. The line has to end and you have to move on. But stand still is clearly a sort of, it's like putting on the brakes, slowing it down as much as possible. So that's the example I usually give when people ask, how can a line ending be really effective? And I think that's one of the best. So it's a total like Renaissance mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a whole chapter on the Sestina, Louise, so that will be nice for you. Oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah, now, yeah. now that I know what that is. <laughs> I mean, the Sestina is nuts, though. The way, like, I've, I've seen, like, diagrams of people trying to talk about how it's, how, how you have that kind of continuous, like, moving around of different, yeah. and it's just, like, spiral, 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 spiral. It, if anything, more confusing every time I've ever seen anything about it. Last year, for my birthday, I had a, I caused a Sestina cake to be made. Oh, <laughs> how does one have a sestina cake please well please elaborate well i just i said it has to be white icing so it looks like a page and then in black icing i had the numbers of the sestina written out so one two three four five six it's <laughs> one five two four three and so on through all the permutations Excellent. i thought you were going to say that you, you tasked someone with having to write a sestina where every line ended with stephen uh <laughs> would be good and I don't know why more people are not doing that now that I think of it. But right. Next year. There's always next year. There's always we next can year. ask our listeners. Yeah. That's fine. Our legions of fans. <laughs> legions. Legions of fans. <laughs> um, yeah, no, definitely. I think that would be a real, definitely not a waste of time, but it would be really important for <laughs> understanding poetics in general. Well, I think, I think it's always a good idea to have a poetry-themed cake. Mm. My birthday cake this year had just the slash that shows there's a line ending because a birthday is like a line ending. One year ends, the next oh, year I like ends. It. So are they also, they're not just poetic, they're not just poetry themed, but are they related to what you're currently writing about? Yeah. Every year? Yeah. Nice. I mean, it kind of intimidates me that you are writing something every year. Um, but it's but like... that's, that's the life of an academic, right? You have to write all the time. I love writing. Writing is so much fun. I like thinking about writing. <laughs> yeah, I love thinking about writing and the preparation of going into writing. And then when it gets there, it's like, oh gosh, I've got so many emails I should look at. <laughs> Buying the notebooks and the pens. Oh, yes. That, that is... One thing which I found very important as, as part of my praxis is that for each big project, I get a new cologne. So each new oh, project okay. has its signature scent. That's like multi-sensory oh, praxis. I'm here for it. Oh, I love it. What was um, what was the the scent for line endings? That one was um, what's it called? It's, I forget. It has some weird name. It's not a real word. Star by Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's called uh, Exoteric. Oh, Ooh, okay. It's okay. very cool, and it has lines on the bottle, which is why I first thought of it. And then it's a really great smell, so that was good. Ah, okay. So you, have to, you also have to theme the perfume around the, um, sorry, the... I usually do. I hear, around for um, Shakespeare and queer representation, there was, you know, in the sonnets, I write a lot about roses. So I got a rose-based oh. perfume for that. Nice. So the, do you have to be, like, wearing it every day, or is it just when you're writing? No, every day. Yeah. I like the idea of, like making stipulating for publishers that they need to sort of waft the cologne over the books as well like so that, you know when the physical copy you get it it smells like the cologne as well i like the idea that 
you could build perfume into a funding bid in terms of like part of my my research necessities is both this archive trip and also this incredibly bespoke perfume experience that I have created for myself. <laughs> yes, that would be good. Prosody is power. Discuss. That was just a sudden inspiration I had a few years ago when I was lecturing. And I wrote it on the board, so I have it on my, my Twitter site now. Um, and it's also the lock screen for my phone. It's just really good. I I'm always suggest, you know, I, in class, I suggest to students they should get literature tattoos all the time. Um, and I'm always suggesting that one, and no one has done it yet. But a few students, <laughs> a few students have had Milton tattoos, so that, that's something. Ooh, okay. okay. I think prosody is power, the way I see it, is that knowing the prosody of a poem gives you an insight into the poem that you can't get in any other way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, do you, have any, do you have any literary tattoos? Yes, I have um, this one. It's just ut, ut, the Latin word, which introduces a comparison. So I got it for the queer representation book because it's about representation. Oh my God, do you get a tattoo for every book as well? No, no, that was my first. And then I got, um, I have to disrobe to show you this one, so I'm not going to show you, but I got the word, I got the, for this book, I got the word lock. Put it away, Stephen. Because <laughs> they were on an oral you medium. your line ending, Stephen, please. <laughs> I did actually, um, I, there's a picture on my Twitter. It's on my thigh. I got the word line. Line. Okay, nice. Nice, nice. Yeah. I mean, you've got, um, well, it's not a, not a book. Oh, some some would say it's literature. Uh, yeah no i've got on my left wrist i've got the letters b d p q um because i'm dyslexic and those are the ones that i muddle up and um so cool it was kind of like so i got it kind of midway through my phd when i was having real real issues with actually doing it because i don't know if you if you know but it's not really set up for people with learning difficulties to get a phd in literature who'd have thunk um but um yeah so it was a a bit of a sort of ownership thing um yeah and then the peacocks that was just because peacocks are lovely yeah (laughs) we went to malta together and i I have a peacock on my shoulder and this couple walked past me going lovely peacock in that tone of voice (laughs) and alex never forgot lovely (laughs) <laughs> when I was a boy, my parents had friends, and in their on their country house, they had peacocks, as people sometimes do, and they are horrible birds. They are just horrible. Oh, they 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 they, they scream. They look They're cool, awful. but they do sound like strangling beautiful. cats. The female ones, the peahens, never look cool. The peacocks look cool. Oh, I feel so sad for peahens <laughs> when they have their tail extended. But otherwise, yeah, they're just they're noisy and they're crabby too. And I think you have a beautiful tail. What are you so bitter about? <laughs> yeah. but it's a good tattoo I like it <laughs> um, Alex has some sort of eco shit so ignore it oh yeah well because mine was all about the ocean so I've got like a just a big line drawing moon and ocean wave kind of thing. Oh, that's very pretty I like that um, thank you I like it too I want to get a new one but um, there's been a pandemic so I haven't had a so chance <laughs> Of man's first disobedience, and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe, with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse. Call me when you want, call me when you need, call me in the morning, I'll be on the way, call me when you want.
You've got a question, Louise, about, I think, was it Lil Nas X? Yes. Um, I think um, you mentioned Milton. Speaking of Milton tattoos. Um, yeah. um, so, was it, that, you know, Milton Satan, like, is he a gay icon? Like, do, do we think he was a big inspo for little Lil Nas X, or was that, no? It, it looks that way. When that video came out, I remember everyone got in touch with me and said, what do you think? Because I published, I published <laughs> an article on gay angel sex in Paradise Lost. I mean, it's not really gay. The angels, they're presumptively male. They're described as male, and Milton uses male pronouns. But the point is they're not made of flesh, and they can take any shape they want. They can be men. They can be women. They can be furniture, whatever. Um, but they do have sex, and that's something that most Miltonists who are really conservative and actually believe in God never want to discuss, <laughs> the fact that the male angels, as they clearly, Milton clearly says, are, are having sex. And I think Satan and Beelzebub are um, presented as having sex. There are various parallel, there's a parallel scene with them and then with Adam and Eve that shows very much closeness. Ooh. So, yeah, I think that that is, um, well, I'd, I'd like to take total credit for it and say that um, Lil Nas X read my gay angel sex in Milton uh, essay course, yeah. and based his, yeah. his video on. Yeah. It's a bit of a shit for not <laughs> citing you in the video. Yeah, yeah that's not yeah. Right. <laughs> Plagiarism's a thing, Lil Nas X. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so wonderful. He wrote, he read, he made this great statement, which every day I think of it, it makes me laugh. He, um, because, you know, he was like everyone else, he was unknown and had no money and then he finally hit it big so he said mm -hmm. just after he hit it big he said you know one year ago i had two hundred dollars in the bank and my car was broken down and i was sleeping on my sister's sofa and now i'm gay <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's amazing i can't believe milton said yeah. <laughs> what a lad <laughs> What an absolute lad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy Lon Azex's Twitter. Um, it's endless. Yeah, yeah, so much fun. <laughs> um, actually, it's a shame because we, we only, we do a little bit of Paradise Lost in the poetry course, but because it's, we just don't have a lot of time for it. But I think at one point I did describe Satan as like the hottest character they'd come across on the entire course over 10 weeks. And students were like, <laughs> but the, the unfortunate part is, is that we only do um, the extract that's in the Norton Anthology, which is not sexy, sexy Satan, sadly. It's just the the opening invocation. Mm -hmm. and It's a real tragedy. Wow. But the idea of setting the full... The, the opening invocation is great, but yes, they need the gay angel sex. They need the gay angel mm -hmm. sex. I mean, Louise, have you ever... You've, you've read Paradise Lost so many times, haven't you? <laughs> Tots Paradise Lost, Alex. <laughs> it was very often a close reading week <laughs> of the gay angel sex. Uh, no, we, what was your other close reading week? Wim Chow and the Flame of That's my favorite thing to set ever when I'm teaching poetry, which isn't very often. But um, setting Michael Field and then seeing who Googled it, like, and then but, <laughs> oh, that's good, yes, yeah, but also specifically setting. The, po the love poetry to the dog in their later collections that talk about the fluffy ears and things and then asking, yeah, so who's this for? And again, you work out who Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun game of mine. <laughs> yeah, I like um, Yeah. Um, so we've noticed that, I mean, when we originally 
um, we're going to record. We noticed that you've used the hashtag Praxis a fair amount on your Twitter recently. Being law my Praxis, what does Praxis mean to you? Because no one knows what it means. <laughs> well, when I, I mean, it was a popular word when I was in graduate school. You're always hearing about Praxis, but in a very sort of theoretical and technical way. And then I, I, well, before all this happened, I spent a lot of time in, in Germany. And praxis there is a completely normal word. It means like surgery, like a doctor is assigned saying praxis. But until you get used to it, it's so weird because you're walking around and you think, Germans are so theoretical. They all have actually formed saying praxis. <laughs> Alex, we need to go to Germany for <laughs> podcast business. Maybe Thursday, for nine to five or something. Uh, <laughs> and so with the hashtag praxis, and I mean, I, I, I do use the word praxis a lot on Twitter because I'm trying to redefine praxis to mean everything people do in order to be professors. So for instance, the finding the signature scent for your book, that's praxis. Oh yeah. Oh, and when I finished the last book, um, I was, I remember I was at a hotel in Los Angeles and I tweeted that last night I finished my book and so I went out and celebrated and I celebrated too much, but that too is praxis because not just the writing oh, is praxis, the celebration after the writing is praxis. So Alex, we are everything. We are everything. Mm -hmm. My praxis. praxis is all the things. I mean, I do love that. Like, where, where did this developing of a signature sense start? I am just very, did it start like, are you thinking like early days, first grad paper, you're like, oh God, I just like... No, I always work alone, but I only, it's only in the last few years that I've started thinking, and I've always changed colognes, and it's only in the last few years that I've started thinking I should have colognes that I associate, for whatever reason, it could be completely arbitrary, with the book. Then it's practice, right? Otherwise, it's just something you do. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, you know. I'm going to go out and buy some perfume and maybe then I'll write a book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I think we are now at the very end. Yes. So in terms of ends and endings, um, is there a line ending you would like us to end on? And then also, do you have anything that you would like our dear listeners to know about that's coming up? Oh, I can't think of anything. Um, but I think, you know, this is yet another thing done online. Um, and of course, to me, when I think of line ending, I think of ending online. I mean, I like being online in all sorts of ways, but it gets me down to uh, like last year teaching online was horrible and all these online meetings. Oh, so the online part should end. And then when we, the three of us have a discussion again, we'll have it in an actual pub with drinks. And everything. Yes, like absolutely. In, I don't know, Vancouver, Glasgow, Durham, wherever we find ourselves. Not I mean, Durham, but yeah, else. if you if, <laughs> if we were to get some expenses to go over to Vancouver, like I mean, that would be fine. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. I'm here to tell you too, young women, that um, international travel can also be praxis. Ah, oh, then oh, yes. it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely put a, a bit in. <laughs> <laughs> to find out more about Stephen's research into hot man-on-man -man Renaissance action, you can follow him on Twitter at sguybray. 
We've been Lomopraxis. If you like what you heard, you can rate and review us on iTunes. Or, to ensure that we keep producing world-leading, totally non-reppable, excellent content, you can support us for the price of an overpriced coffee by signing up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Lomopraxis. You can get in touch with us by emailing Lomopraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at Lomopraxis. Shout out to our biggest fan, Jeremy Corbyn. He liked us on Twitter. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.